Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode is part of a special three-episode podcast series exclusively for Portland Book Festival 2022. This year, we feature conversations about swimming, cooking, and music. Gabriel Cahane is the current creative chair of the Oregon Symphony. His new piece, The Right to be Forgotten, premieres this month, November 2022. He describes it as a sort of autofiction, a semi to honestly mostly autobiographical folk opera inspired by Cahane's own year without the internet. He talks about that year and his process writing The Right to be Forgotten, as well as his most recent album, Magnificent Bird, with Portland-based author Karen Russell. Both Kahane and Russell are artists who, as they phrase it, sway between genres, ultimately resisting categorization. Let's join Karen. Hey, Gabriel. Hey, Karen. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to see and, you, too. And surprising to be back in our Zoom boxes. I know we'd originally planned for this to be like the great return to uh, dimensional <laughs> exchange. Existence. Yeah. Yes. But sadly, I, I have been felled by the... The newborn plague. The newborn plague, yeah. 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 Um, it does feel strangely apropos, I think, in a, in a way, you know, um, since a lot of your recent work has, has dealt with exactly this, you know, what technology can enable and what it can distort and pervert and destroy. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that this morning as I was preparing to chat with you, that it, it does feel um, both sad but but also appropriate in, in kind of putting putting our minds back to spring of 2020. Although, of course, I was not doing the Zoom boxes then because I was in the middle of my year-long hiatus from the internet. Exactly. And I have some questions about the lineage of your recent albums. Yeah. I did want to read this that I found from Alex Ross's gorgeous piece uh, about you and your work. Just as sort of an intro to you for people who you know who might not be familiar so Alex calls you one of the finest, most searching songwriters of the day. And he also says, Gabriel Cahane, a Brooklynite singer-composer who sways between pop and classical worlds. And I thought that verb sways was so amazing. I mm. feel like I'm always using straddle, like straddle genres, you know, or mm. straddles, you know, disciplines, which sounds like, honestly, kind of creepy and <laughs> domineering <Totally>. and also <laughs> precarious, like you're going to fall into a ravine maybe, <laughs> like while you're doing that straddling. Totally. And did that feel accurate to you, that, that idea of kind of like swaying between sort of concert halls and basement clubs? Um, and I think I often resist any kind of categorization that's rooted in genre. Uh -huh. I think I, I find we live in a society that's that's obsessed with categorization. And one of the really beautiful things that has come out of the collapse of the music industry is that there are so many adjacencies that did not used to exist. When mm -hmm. I was an 18 year old uh, going to the New England Conservatory where I, I studied for one year as a jazz pianist, we would go every Friday afternoon, we'd walk down Mass Ave to the enormous Tower Records. But in the Tower Records, there was a room for jazz. There was a room for, you, you know, you remember this because yeah, we're the same age. Totally. Um, but I mean, I think in particular, there was something symbolically depressing about the fact that the classical section was like in a glass box. Right. It was it was in a different 
you know, it was cordoned off from everything else. And, and so I think that on, on the one hand, we live in this very slippery post-genre world where you have, you know, the Johnny Greenwoods of Radiohead writing film scores and being accomplished orchestral composers or um, Bryce Desner or our mutual friend, Missy Mazzoli, who has, a, you know, an electro pop band and then also writes operas. Mm -hmm. And I think that because of how commonplace that slipperiness of genre has become, it starts to feel like it gets in the way of conversations about the actual craft itself. Now, that being said, on the other hand, I'm a big believer in the notion that all art is intertextual and that the way that we understand the world is uh, the, the ways in which a text, whether that's a piece of music or a painting or a play, talks to things that have come before. So it's not to say that genre is completely useless because right. the ways in which we make something that sort of smells of a certain style our own is is part of what leads to voice. Right, absolutely. I think I think about it that way too, right? So it's who are you having a conversation with, right? Who are your kind of antecedents and who are your contemporaries and and that and 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 also what are the expectations that you're going to riff on or play with and subvert? You know, it's good. Yeah. To have I a think, sense of that. But, you know, to go back to um, Alex Ross, I, I, I will confess that I, you know, I read that piece. He's, he's one of my favorite music writers. And, and it was like, you know, it was one of those dream reviews where yeah. I felt so seen so by seen. him. So seen. Oh, I thought but, it was really but gorgeous. But the, the parts of the piece that where I felt the most seen and what I feel like happens too little in music criticism is really close reading a song and really close reading a lyric. Right. And I think that's where I, I think I often have been frustrated when people write about my work is they're sort of looking at the gloss mm -hmm. and not at the sort of the psychology that's that's underneath it. And like, how does this line relate to this line? And why is he using this chord to underpin this piece of text and so on and so forth? Right. I think that's so interesting. Because I, I do, I feel like I have a musician friend where I think the lyrics are just sort of an afterthought. Any, it's almost Mad Libs, right? Almost anything could have gotten slotted in, and really it's about the music. And I never get that sense with your work. And Magnificent Bird in particular, those lyrics are poems, really, or they're mm. tiny narratives. Mm. Do you start there? Is that where it starts? With that project, I did. It was... Um... It was basically a writing exercise. I started in the yeah. uh, October of 2020, which was the, the final month of my digital sabbatical, writing a song every day as a way of trying to give myself permission to write about small things and also to um, relieve myself of the pressure to kind of distill the enormity of everything that was happening right. in October of 2020, which was incredibly chaotic into everything I wrote. And so it's funny that you say poems because... I do think that the aesthetic logic of those songs owes much more to poetry. My friend Matthew Zapruder is also a mutual friend of our I mutual love friend, Miss Mazzoli. Yeah, a just great an, taste an incredible. People, us. He's great, but he says a beautiful thing about, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher this, but he says something to the effect of how poetry is the art of aestheticizing how a thought travels through the brain, yeah. and and I think that whereas a lot of songs of mine from other projects are like, I have this story to tell about the Ambassador Hotel or a story to tell about this person I met on this train trip in 2016. Whereas um, with Magnificent Bird, I began every morning writing essentially like longhand prose poems and then kind of shaping them and coaxing them into song form. So I think they are 
in a way settings of poems. And it, they read that way, but that's so interesting. Mm. So it's almost that constraint of saying, I'm going to get over the hurdle of perfectionism because I'm going to do one of these a day. Yes, um, and some of them are awful. <laughs> oh, are, is there stuff on the cutting room floor from that? Oh yeah, well, I, I mean, I wrote thirty. I wrote That's thirty-one true. songs. That's true. I yeah, just did that. I only, moved the abacus in my mind. I'm like, wait. There are only ten <laughs> on the album. Yeah, yeah. There are yeah. a few others that I probably will release at some some point that I I like, and there were a few that I perform live. But you know, I mean, you you know this as a writer with serious craft. One of the great joys I think of of what we do is when you get to the place where putting something away, putting it in a drawer, pinning it to the wall feels like an act of grace and an act of beauty rather than a sacrifice right, or, right. or something Or sad. abandonment. <laughs> yeah. Right. Absolutely. I always wish, I have a friend who's a vintner and I'm like, that process seems so amazing. I wish we could just put them in a barrel and return <laughs> and see <laughs> what time had done to like, <laughs> um, but totally. I sadly know the desktop that rarely, well, you know. But I do think that there's a way in which, I'm sure you've had projects like this where you do put it in a barrel. And in fact, with, um, the right to be forgotten, which in theory we might chat about, which is this weird <laughs> folk opera that's premiering uh, this weekend in uh, in Portland. Um, the very first line, I was I was reading this novel, um, Ducks Newburyport, by Lucy Elman. I don't oh, know if this crossed your Everyone has recommended this to me. I haven't read it yet. So yeah. It's this. So her father is like one of the great James Joyce scholars, and she wrote this doorstop of a novel it's like a thousand pages and the structural conceit is that there's a single sentence that goes on for 980 pages and then occasionally there's a sentence break where you get these um, very very austere accounts in the third person of this lioness and her cubs and I didn't finish it, but I did read like 500 pages of it. And and <laughs> it reads like a, you know, a cross between Joyce and slam poetry and someone's like insane diary. The, the narrator is a housewife in Ohio who used to work at a college and now has this pie baking business. And it's outrageously funny and sad. And so I was doing some free writes that were sort of inspired by the stream of consciousness of, of that book. And I wrote this line. Nathaniel Levitan was trying to take a look at his life. He had a beautiful daughter, a beautiful, why would you start a song that way? And then there was like a bunch of completely bonkers nonsense. And I put it in a drawer and then a year later I pulled it out and I was like, oh, this alter ego is interesting to me. Wow. So that was yeah. your barrel. So Nathaniel Levitan, it was, it was all, it was just, you were in the rhythm of that world and, and he sort of sprung up. Yeah. I, I will also just say in a sort of meta moment. So this, this piece, the right to be forgotten, um, it's a folk opera and there is this composer named Nathaniel Levitan who's writing a piece about his year off the internet and struggling to do so and you know we can get into the details more and it's both me and not me and and I was having this this question of like how how do I talk about that and so I went back and I read some interviews with Ayad Akhtar when around the release of Homeland Elegies right. and I love how straightforward he is about it. He's not trying to hide anything. He's just like, yeah, some of it's true and some of it's not true and it's me and it's not me. And I, I the, this, the same thing is true with Nathaniel Levitan. And I think maybe where it gets interesting is like why that figure that's slightly distanced from me is useful. It's really, I was really struck by that. And just to kind of let people maybe who don't know the um, kind of 
the lineage of your work. So Book of Travelers is uh, this gorgeous um, kind of anthology of voices, right? And and it's really about other people. Are you really taking yeah. on other voices? And and it's told from this observation car, which I also love, just as sort of like a platform for on a train art yeah. making. Yeah, and and then there's a sort of some kind of creative Doppler happens where now your observation car is your porch in Portland. The world has shut down. You're offline. You've chosen to go offline at a time when the only way really to connect turns out to be virtual. So there's some perverse way where the the project becomes something else. I mean, just as the kind of reality itself became something else in 2020. But I wondered about that, right? So suddenly the observation car is really just like very interior, you know, you've and, and it's still somehow I feel like magnificent bird toggles between the intimate and the panoramic in this amazing way. Maybe maybe I will stop talking and just ask you about the connection between magnificent bird and the right to be forgotten. So I think it's probably useful for me to back up and and connect all of those dots. So Book of Travelers is an account of a 9,000 mile train trip that I took in 2016, beginning the morning after the presidential election. And I want to tell you about November, the people that I met. And sleeping badly on Pullman Palace, a blue blanket caked in sweat. Cardiogram power lines, heart of the Department of the Interior, glow in the dark Casio, breathing fast. to dozens of strangers, mostly in dining cars of Amtrak trains. And I had planned that trip a few weeks before the election with the sort of goal of trying to cut through the various channels of media and leadership that for centuries have sowed seeds of division between people to to prevent solidarity. And it's it's such a cliche, but it remains true. And that con remains successful um, hmm. here and, and abroad. And and so I wanted to understand what was attracting people to, um, to uh, you know, a would-be tyrant and um, a sort of self-described bigot. And I think for whatever reason, I just, I have too much faith in, in people to write people off because they're seduced by ugliness or, or fascism or, or racism or, or what have you. And that, that at root, most people are fundamentally when push comes to shove good to their neighbor. And that, you know, fear is, is this horrific substance in our, in our, in our culture and, and has been for, for such a long time. 
And so I went out on the train and had all these extraordinary experiences of talking to people who, who were very generous and telling me their stories and felt both affirmed in, in my hypothesis. And then there were places where I was really challenged, challenged by people who took issue with the project mm -hmm. from a, like from a left perspective. And there were, there were moments where I came into, into contact with people who, who had, you know, really intensely sucked at the teat of Rupert Murdoch to such an extent that it was really hard to have a conversation around the same, you know, cosmology or re re reality. But notably, I took that trip without my phone and somewhere in the desert, I think in New Mexico, maybe I thought this is really transformative and it's, it's causing me to consider a lot of my own assumptions and prejudices, the, the kinds of prejudices that I think tend to live in left and left of center circles. Right. And I thought, you know, I should do this for longer because it, it feels like it's really healed me in, in a way. And so then in the fall of 2019, November of 2019, I decided that I was going to take a year off the internet and four months into that hiatus of no email, no social media, no smartphone, no uh, Elon Musk fanfic blogs in the middle of the night, um, I traveled to Portland, Oregon for what was supposed to be one week and um, pandemic arrived. We started getting phone calls from our friends in New York and said, don't come back. And so we, we decided to stay. And, and so there became this much more monastic aspect to being off the internet. What I had hoped was going to happen was that our, you know, our digital devices have this way of vacuuming out human interaction from, from our lives, right? You, you order your groceries online, you order food online, whatever. Um, we, we have so many fewer opportunities to just engage with strangers in non-freighted moments. Right. And I think that that's really kind of under discussed in, in the sort of fracturing of the social fabric, the extent to which we just don't, we don't rub, see each rub, other. Right, crazy, or especially non-instrumental, you know, non-transactional ways, right? I feel like yeah, that absolutely. was very apparent to me uh, during the pandemic. So, so the, the hope was that in being offline, I was going to interact with strangers more. And for the first four months, that was absolutely the case. I got to know my bookseller in Brooklyn super well. I, I got to know a lot of hotel concierges super well because I, you know, there was no, there was no Google and I would, you know, walk <laughs> down in the morning and say, where should I go for breakfast or coffee? And we'd get into a chat and first they would look at me sort of quizzically, like you have a smartphone, right? You can look these things up yourself which sort of begs the question of like the obsolescence of the hotel concierge or whatever. But then I got out to Portland and didn't really know anyone. We were in lockdown. And so it became super, super monastic, which was both frustrating and made me think like, maybe I should just give up because I'm now 2,500 miles away from right. all of my friends and I'm not online. But ultimately I decided to, to stick it out it's such a different project than the one you envisioned in some ways, yet still very connected, I think, to kind of the ethos of your earlier album. You know, reading these lyrics, Gabe, you know, in We Are the Saints, but in that dream I see a circle of light and hope and strangers looking deep in the eyes of someone they thought they didn't know. But in that dream I see a circle of light and hope and strangers looking deep in the eyes 
of someone they thought they didn't know. They say, you feed the future to keep on walking toward the little piles of broken stones. These days of wandering, blood blindfold armory. I want to hold you close. Oh, comfort me. We'll glide down these empty streets and see the blue and green after the flood. And I mean, I can't imagine like a more succinct description of like what art can do, you know. Um, and that just well, seems like such such a, a through line in all of these projects. Mm, I. I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I do feel like that's kind of a, a thesis statement for how I hope to walk through the world is helping right. people to see themselves in each other. Right. And I think that was also present in emergency shelter intake form, which I wrote for the Oregon Symphony back in 2018, which is this deep dive into housing insecurity and, and homelessness and those phenomena as symptoms of, of inequality and really trying to get away from these kind of packaged cliches about what chronic homelessness is like 90% of uh, those experiencing homelessness on a given night are invisible because they're in cars, they're staying right. with family. And, and, and yet we sort of have this idea of what that experience is and it creates this gulf. But I realized I didn't really answer your question about the relationship between Magnificent Bird and and right to be forgotten. Right to be forgotten. Yeah, I'm so curious. Was it commissioned before Magnificent Bird or after? Or? At the same time. Okay. Yeah. So basically I had a commission with a few university presenters with like big tech components. So Stanford, Georgia Tech and the University of Washington commissioned Magnificent Bird. And then the Oregon Symphony, Cincinnati Symphony and L.A. Phil commissioned The Right to be Forgotten. And um, I think one of the big shifts with both pieces is that going into my year offline, I was like, I'm going to make a screed about surveillance capitalism. And it's going to be like the Shoshana Zuboff show. Huh? She she wrote the incredible book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which for me is a, a must read. And what I think ultimately led me to the Nathaniel Levitan alter ego was feeling that we don't need more techno pessimism. We don't need more shaking of fists generally in art that that's not actually what moves the needle what what i believe moves the needle in this moment is massaging people's hearts and so nathaniel levitan kind of gives me permission to say yeah i'm not actually going to write a piece about surveillance capitalism i'm going to write this like weird slapstick and i don't i don't know i mean you probably have a better sense of this than i how much one wants to give away about like what the actual conceit of the piece is i was just going to see if you'd feel comfortable reading the program note which is hilarious and amazing but if, oh sure if, i think that would really um give people a sense okay so here's the program note i first encountered the work of composer and performer nathaniel levitan somewhat by accident in 2014, during a visit to the Bay Area, I stumbled one evening into a performance of Embarcadero, Levitan's meditation on American myth-making and manifest destiny, as seen through the lens of San Francisco and its built environment. Staged at the Yerba Buena Art Center, it was an unusual production, not quite concert, not quite theater, 
helmed by the cult English director, Michael Diamond. The songs, if at times a bit purple lyrically, were distinctive in their harmonic language, as well as in their raw emotional earnestness. I was intrigued and began to follow Nathaniel's work avidly, keeping up in large part through his output on social media, which was, to say the least, prolific. But then late in 2019, he seemingly disappeared. It wasn't the kind of thing one noticed immediately, but after a time, his absence from digital spaces became conspicuous, particularly in the spring of 2020, when, with the onset of the pandemic, seemingly every artist had pivoted to digital, as the saying went. Was he retreating from music making? Had he suffered an illness? Finally, in the summer of 2021, Levitan resurfaced, revealing that he had embarked on a year-long experiment in living a completely analog life. No smartphone, no email, no social media, no web browsing. Yet he remained somewhat cagey about why it was that he decided to drop out of digital spaces, particularly at a moment when his career seemed to have been at an apex. This is where the right to be forgotten begins. In this mini folk opera, I imagine, while taking liberal artistic license, Nathaniel's creative process, his inner life, his experience during the early months of the pandemic, and what it was like for him to return to our digital status quo after his Walden-esque experiment in leaving the internet behind. In a way, Nathaniel's quest mirrors my own search for gratitude <laughs> in a world that seems bent on constantly reminding us of what we lack. Perhaps we all have something to learn from Nathaniel's journey and might come to discover that what we need most is already within our grasp. I mean, I love that so much and really because it says something profound, but in the way that somebody like George Saunders will find a way to state these really bald truths and you can receive them because you have been charmed and disarmed by this mm. man. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like whatever kind of self-seriousness can sort of sink something. I, I, Nathaniel Levitan, as soon as you hear that name even, you're like, oh, and I was thinking about, you know, um, <laughs> Borges and his like reviews of fictitious books. Yeah. You know, and Roth. And I mean, so many other writers who do have these alter egos that the kind of freedom that comes with that. Totally. And I guess this is where I sort of wonder, I mean, the, the sort of big reveal happens two minutes into the piece. And I, I guess that's where I'm wondering, like, do we do we talk about that or do we leave that <laughs> oh, that's, a surprise? I, I don't know either. I was going to ask you. I don't think it's a spoiler at all. OK, let's talk about it. So this and I was thinking about Charlie Kaufman's adaptation. Also, here is a libretto that really dramatizes the agony of trying to write a libretto. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, Nathaniel, who has spent this, he's had this digital hiatus. It's been transformative and positive in all kinds of ways. He's relapsing now and in, <laughs> he's sheepishly crawling back. Yeah. So basically the piece opens and he's trying to write this piece. We don't, when the piece opens, we don't know what he's doing, but he's sitting on an upright piano and he's like trying to write a song and it's not going well. And every time he criticizes himself, the orchestra gets activated. So, right. so the, the orchestra kind of becomes the accompaniment to his inner critic. And then finally, he gets fed up and frustrated and resigned. And he opens his laptop and basically calls on this AI module called artproject.ai, who purport to be able to help artists with writer's block, you know, in creative crises to finish their work, but they're also kind of bitchy and they're kind of trolling him the whole time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not clear yeah. if they're actually just trying to undermine him. Yeah. When you think of like a bot, right? Or just sort of like, okay, exclamation mark. Th that's not these three. I also like no. their names. Larry, Mark, and Sergey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Two of whom are played by women. Oh, amazing. Well, yeah. I was Ser thinking... Sergey and Larry are, are played by women. Yeah. What I really love about this is the way that it kind of toggles between like true humor, like, like just kind of who's on first humor 
to like something gorgeous. Like, so, you know, they're saying, you know, why the hell would you leave the feed? Why on earth would you do that? The feed is glorious. The feed is delicious. The feed is delectable. Please tell us. And Nathaniel's like, okay. <laughs> but then we move from okay to I'd become a reflection in a chemical bath, a collection of fictions and opinions and photographs that glowed in every airless room. You convinced me that I was what I saw on the screen. The world got smaller, my heart turned green. I never thought to look for the moon. Look out, look up, or you're never going to be all right. Can't fill your cup with all this artificial light. I mean, it, it's beautiful writing. Mm. Oh, thank you. And it's, I think it's pretty universal, too, in that way. It's, in, it's just interesting. I think when I go to the park with my kids now, I don't know who really loves to be in the narcissist pond of their tiny device. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's like something we enjoy, but I see that like, you know, I have a friend who is like a, a sober alcoholic and she works in tech and she's like, it feels very uncomfortable that what pays the bills is engineering addiction and that that's the oh, explicit God. goal. Everyone's really yeah. upfront about that. They're not like, let's make a flourishing world. They're like, we want people on our banking app all day. <laughs> well, and you... I don't know if you had this experience before having kids, but I remember before I had kids being so judgmental when I would walk around in Prospect Park in Brooklyn and see parents on their phones when they were with yeah. their kids. And I would think like, your child is so precious. You've created this <laughs> being. What are you doing wasting your life on your device? And one of the things that was great about my year offline was that I couldn't do that for a year. And I still don't have an iPhone, but I got an iPod. And the nice thing about that is I can only use it when I'm on Wi-Fi, but I still find ways of being on a device when I'm with my children. And yeah. I, and it feels terrible while it's happening. And returning to this thing about the alter ego, I think there's so much shame involved in parts of the story that I'm telling about the lack of gratitude, the, in, the inability to be satisfied with what one has, even when you objectively are like, I'm pretty successful. Right. But all of these platforms are designed to make us look at our more successful, more famous colleagues and feel a lack. And so I think that distancing myself a little bit feels somehow a little less shameful. <laughs> I don't know. Totally. No, I mean, I was thinking about that, like egos and alter egos. And if an ego is always telling stories about lack, to sync that up with these devices that by design are, you know, and, and an economy that sort of runs on a sense of lack and a sense that, you know, like we're going to engineer an appetite and implant it in a body that would never like naturally experience it. I think it's such a powerful look at that because it's true. It is shameful to admit that. I mean, like no one's walking around like I was like, hey, buddy, like, did you self Google this morning? <laughs> you know, like it's not something I think people discuss. But I was with an editor in New York. And I was just saying, I was like, man, I cower before the algorithm. Like, I don't even know what these sales rankings mean, but they make me feel so bad. And she was like, hypocritically, I tell my authors never to look, but I have it on my phone and it's continuously refreshing. <laughs> and I appreciated that she told me that because I think there is a way. I mean, really talking to my friend yeah. in tech, she's like, no, we are, it's, it, it hijacks your neural architecture. Well, you know, It's really interesting that you bring that up because I think at the center to me, at the very center of the right to be forgotten, there's this little moment with Nathaniel alone with the guitar, where the middle movement of the piece is, is called a callous bloom, and it's sort of the longest song. And it's a ring form which exists in literature and, and also in music where there's a kind of symmetry going toward the, the center of, of the object. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious to know where you experience that in, in literature, because I'm much more familiar with it in music. But it kind of 
is framed by encounters with my my mother's mother and then on either side of that moving inward there's uh, my family moving to Oregon and then at the very center is this kind of spiritual inquiry about what why do we as artists do what we do in the absence of any feedback whether physical or digital and I think you know obviously for a musician that's that's dif different than for someone whose medium exists on the page primarily but I think that this thing about algorithms and rankings is both dehumanizing to the audience or the reader listener and, and also to the artist and and for me one of the the really revelatory moments came in spring of 2021 when I was nominally back online, but still off of social media and reading Lewis Hyde's book, The Gift, and the way that he describes art living in both a gift economy and a market economy. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he says, you know, art can exist without the market, but where there is no gift, there is no art. And, and he writes beautifully about the reciprocity that occurs between an artist and her audience. And when I, as I began to meditate on that, I realized that all of the moments in my career that have meant the most to me, that have really nourished me, that have brought me back to the lonesome, right. punishing, you know, uh, <laughs> solitude of the writing desk are, are ones that did not happen at scale. They happened in, in really, really intimate ways. And everything in the culture is sort of trying to wash, wash that away. I love um, that I was in the room when you premiered Magnificent Bird um, because I hadn't really seen live music either in you know years, plural. And to see the symphony, I mean, also I think when people, when I hear Oregon Symphony, I don't know that I'm going to like laugh out loud like in my chair. <laughs> you know, that doesn't really seem, that association isn't there for me. Right. And it was such a sustained gaze with the audience. And I mean, mm. I'm sure you felt it and I'm sure the performers did too. There was this moment of merger where you were, um, and this this is a piece that appears in The Right to Be Forgotten, too. You were singing about sitting Shiva for your grandmother. And it was just so clear that we were now all, like, implicated in the mm. symphony. Everybody mm. was. You could feel, like, riding up everybody's spines, you know, mm. some memory of loss, you know. And to hold that space in real time is really profound. We sit cross-legged on the edge of the bed. Leaning into the laptop to hear what's just been said In the manner of a modern family honoring the dead It's so interesting that, that you bring that up. That's that's the one piece of music that, that I borrowed that, that sort of is the, I guess, the, the hinge between Magnificent Bird and, and Right to be Forgotten. You know, thinking of, thinking about the, the universal experience of loss during lockdown when we weren't able mm -hmm. to grieve in the in the ways that we're meant to grieve and and one of the things about sitting shiva i i'm not particularly a practicing jew but i think one of the gorgeous things about that ritual is that it understands that the way part of the way that we nourish our spirits when we're most broken is by being coaxed into community with people who are going to sort of re rebuild the synaptic heart connections and friendship connections with with people who are going to like lift you up through through that that moment um and for for those who are not familiar with sitting shiva sitting shiva is where you basically have a quorum of people who basically sit around and 
tell stories in in the home of the bereaved and there's food and and it's it's both sad and celebratory and and a lot of people whether jewish or not went you know went through a version of that and it reminds me i i read this thing in in the drift that new literary magazine um that was sort of a, a referendum on autofiction i think by alexander kleeman who was basically like autofiction is dead because we were all learning to make you know bucatini with shallots during the pandemic and we all got <laughs> tired of doing it but i i i guess i don't i'm not sure that i totally buy that argument because i think that one of the one of the things that seems to make that song powerful in the in the context of you know going out and playing club shows or playing with the symphony is is the universality of of that that experience and obviously that song isn't exactly auto fiction um but um i guess when we're able to tap into a universal experience so so much of the culture feels so fragmented it's yeah. so rare yeah. that we have a shared collective experience yeah and and so there is a real gift in this time of everything being so diffuse and atomized um to say so i i had this experience and i know that you had it too right and you're plugging into something so primal so human it's funny because I think even I tend to write sort of, you know, really like throw my voice, really need to be honest. I have to get far away from the spell of my name. So it'll be like, like I'm the daughter of werewolves. But obviously you're plugging into that same core experience yes. to make those werewolf girls live. I mean, if you're not, it's yeah. so evident. I do think you have to find some way to, to drill down into something that does feel true. And it, it's just, I was curious to know, what you were able to say as Nathaniel that would have felt impossible maybe on Magnificent Bird or on some of the other yeah. albums? That's a really great question. Part of it is what Nathaniel can do that I can't do. And then part of it is a little bit of a narrative deus ex machina in the form of this app because they are just offering this onslaught of questions. And so they, they can kind of turn the narrative on a dime within the conceit of being in the piece. Because, you know, in theory, they're doing this sort of intake of, you know, gathering all this information, doing machine learning mm -hmm. so that they can then spit out the piece for him. And I think that their presence, just the scale of it being a multiplicity of voices rather than just my voice, allows me to get at some of the inanity of the internet and there's a you know there's a movement where they nathaniel describes being drawn back to the feed sort of the the pieces version of twitter and the the app art project.i they say oh we know about the feed can we do this one and he says oh sure be my be my guest and then they they do this sort of like madcap three minute twitter binge and um and so i feel like structurally there's something about um having having that multiplicity of voices that's that was really kind of freeing and and then i think i i don't know i mean i i think this is this to me is like one of the most fascinating things about auto fiction is like probably for everyone who who employs some some version of it um whether it's sheila hetty or ben lerner or philip roth it's like it's scratching a different itch and 
I mean, on, on some level, I, I wonder if it does have to do with shame. Right. And yet I can't say with any kind of certainty what what it is particularly that I'm able to to get out that I wouldn't be able to get out otherwise. Right. No, it's just, it's a really interesting thing to me. I have a brother who writes nonfiction, and it's, it's clear to me when I read it that, you know, of course, who he is on the page is still a compression and a distortion and a performance, really. But I, I for, maybe for that same reason, like I just have a, like the witness protection program of fiction feels necessary to me mm. to be honest about anything. Yeah. And it's something about that, like having a little elasticity when, um, when you were saying, right, it's so direct to just say some parts are true and some are not true. <laughs> but well, having that, like both uh, both being honest about that and having it, you know, not defined. Yeah. And I think some some of my friends, you know, uh, Ben Marcus, who I love, has a character mm. named Ben. And he was saying people come to a book with the assumption that the protagonist is the author. People are reading for autobiography anyway, you know, in right. that one-to-one way. So he's like, why not just play with that expectation <laughs> in a way? You well, know. it's it's interesting you say that because I think songwriting, the songwriting world has been famously riven by a certain kind of sexism where, and I think the same thing is true in fiction, where songwriters who are women, the assumption is that everything is a confession. Right. And and I think that is less the case. Um, that that assumption is is not imposed on on men as much. But I think there's something about the physical presence of the songwriter delivering the song, which has the effect of complicating our understanding of what is character and, and what is not, which then in this sort of auto fiction that I guess adds another layer of, of complexity towards some, some weird three dimensional chess that I, I cannot in my current <laughs> state compute. <laughs> and I don't know what it means, but I think that was part of what, what interested me as as a reader of a lot of fiction and as, as a reader of a lot of autofiction of like what happens if you transpose this literary device on the stage. And I don't, we're going to find out what it feels like. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I think we have to wrap up. I'm getting uh, the signal that we should wrap up, but I wanted to read this one quote from Alex Ross and maybe that'll be my last question about the libretto. He is writing about, Empire Liquor Mart, the centerpiece of The Ambassador. He says, you give voice to Latasha Harlins, the African-American teenager who was shot a year before the Los Angeles riots of 1992. The singer's delivery doesn't markedly change as he crosses boundaries of gender and ethnicity, Mm. but the musical texture of What If I Told You hints at the mechanics of double consciousness, a Schumann-esque flavor in the piano writing, a tinge of blues for They Don't Need a Hood or a Cross or a Tree. And I guess I was just wondering when you're bringing Nathaniel and the internet mm. and you're going to do it in this analog way <laughs> with a symphony, right. yeah. what is, how does the music kind of reveal that? Or how are you thinking about composition now that you have yeah. a different kind of consciousness that you're presenting? That's, a, that's such a great question. So I think that as someone who has swayed between basement clubs and concert halls, I think there's always a thing that happens almost universally with artists who start in a kind of vernacular form and then get invited into a more formal space, like the symphonic space, where there's a kind of imposter syndrome, which I definitely experienced. And I think early in my career, that resulted in me sort of putting on costumes of a certain kind of complexity in my instrumental and orchestral music that is sort of like, oh yeah, he's, he's speaking French with a convincing accent, but like, he clearly doesn't speak that language really. 
Like he doesn't know what the words mean. It sounds like French, but he doesn't know right. what the words it's mean. It's clever Hans. <laughs> and I, th I think that as I've gotten older and entered into early middle age, there's been this kind of gradual excavation and erasure of a lot of that artifice. And one of the, the people who's inspired me the most in that way is, is my colleague, Caroline Shaw, mm -hmm. who, whatever you think about her music, there's no artifice in it. It's like the most honest music. Right. And what I, what I love about it at its best is that she's using materials that are incredibly familiar. And yet there's this numinous quality where they are hers. And it helped me because, you know, she and I, we write very different music, but, but there are some similarities in, in the way that we approach um, writing music. I think particularly uh, the kind of emotional um, qualities. And it, it helped me to understand something that colleagues of mine had been trying to tell me for years and it would not get through my thick skull, which is that um, there is no uh, reliable telos around how innovation occurs or how voice emerges in art, that the presence of a voice is not about have you created a new language that has never been heard before? It's all about like, is the admixture of things that you're putting together the truest expression of yourself? So all that is to say that I feel like over the last couple of years, I've just like taken out a lot of the artifice mm -hmm. and the right to be forgotten. The songs that Nathaniel sings are very much in the language of the songs that I write for myself. They are, which is why I've called it a folk opera because it's not, it's not going to be sung with like, ah, um, <laughs> and the trio, the, the trolling AI, they're sort of a little bit more new music-y. They, they, they sort of feel like a little bit more contemporary opera, but they're all singers who don't, don't have, they're not opera singers. They're singing on microphones. So it feels very much like a vernacular right. piece. It is true and, that it would be strange if Mark was... <laughs> Just well, vibrato. <laughs> well, Mark is being played. I don't know if you know him, but Mark is being played by local Portland hero Holcomb Waller. I don't know um, him. Who who is just Very an cool. extraordinary singer and and human being, and is just a lovely a lovely person. So yeah, I mean, I I think that that it's there there are ways in which there's a lot of continuity from Magnificent Bird, and then there's also some language that is kind of picked up from Emergency Shelter Intake Form, where mm -hmm. I also kind of had a a sort of quasi Greek chorus, um, the chorus of inconvenient statistics. And there's definitely a relationship between that language and, and the language that. that, that the trio has in this piece. And there's this question kind of at the center of the, the work, which is Nathaniel alone kind of in lockdown asking why, why do I do what I do? And it's unresolved. And then at the end, the trio, the art project AI, they say, you haven't really talked about what it was like to be away from the feed. Maybe we've been asking the wrong question. Maybe the, the right question is this. How is it having left the feed to return? And Nathaniel sings this song, which definitely owes a, a debt to Lewis Hyde. And, and the, the, it's a short text. He sings, I want to be seen, but I want to do right. I want to believe. I want to collide with other bodies, breathing, sweating, crying, bleeding, light and alive. The song is not for sale. It is a contract between my breath and your ears and both of our hearts and the room where we meet. 
That was Karen Russell and Gabriel Kahane. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This episode was part of a podcast exclusive series for Portland Book Festival 2022. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>